If you can, if you can make your way back to your seats. All right. Well, once again, good morning. It's nice to see everybody here this morning on this bright, sunny spring day. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, we praise God for the rain. Um, I, I think sometimes we look at the rain and we get depressed, but I think it's been a while since our last rainstorm. So praise God for the sunshine. Praise God for the rain. If you have your, Bi- <laughs> if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the Gospel of John. We'll be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book in the New Testament. And as you're turning there, as as Nick read, today we're going to be looking at a wedding. And more specifically, Jesus' first miracle that he does. And that got me thinking about my wedding. For Stephanie and, and myself, our wedding, we had a few little problems. Just a few little ones. Nothing, you know, earth shattering. But one in particular, I had one of my buddies from college officiate the wedding. He never did one before. He was an ordained minister my age. So it was a new experience for him as much as it was for us because we've never been married before. So we were outside, and it was a very windy day. It was like 1,000 degrees. The hot, I think it was the hottest day of, of existence in all of the world. But we're outside, and it was really windy. So he had, his, he had a little Bible, like a, a little Bible that he had all his notes in, and as he has a handheld microphone, he's going like this. The wind's blowing, his flopping his pages everywhere. He's just going like this, and you can see him kind of struggling, and I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because as someone who's a public speaker, right, you, you recognize some of these things. And, but he, he was a champ. He, he continued the ceremony. It was funny, the next time I saw him do a wedding outside as he officiated, I saw pictures on Facebook, he had paper clips and paperweights in his Bible. I said, all right, he, lear- he learned a lesson. But besides that, in the middle of our service, we decided to have a unity candle. Now, some of us uh, who have been to weddings, they, they do a couple things. You might see the, like, the couple kind of uh, knot a, a rope together and intertwine the rope. You might see them pass the ring around. But for us, we had a unity candle right, as the token of our, of our undying, eternal, unified love. And, and here's our actual candle. And as you can tell, it, it really wasn't burnt that long. Uh, so what happened was, again, we were outside, and we had this in the center. Hopefully, eh, I'll leave it over here. We had this in the center, and each of us had our own individual candle. And the symbol is as the you know, two become one, and we light the candle together. But the problem was our candles that we were holding, they were lighting pretty okay, but we could not get the unity candle lit. And we tried for a few minutes, and it's funny because neither of us looked at each other like this is a disaster. We were laughing. I think it made one of the, one of the best pictures on, on Facebook that I saw. It's just all of us, my, my friends who's officiating, me and Stephanie, we're just laughing. Because what else could you do? Like The symbol of our undying eternal love is not being lit. Oh, is this a bad omen? I don't know. So it just got me thinking of my wedding, because we see a problem happening in this wedding. And if you go back and think about your wedding, I'm sure there's little things that you can pick apart that didn't go according to your plan. You can go on YouTube and watch hours of video clips of wedding fails. Now, some of those are, are pretty intense compared to what happened for Stephanie and myself. Right? What happens is the couple, usually the bride, they spend months and months, maybe years, planning every single little detail of their wedding to make sure it runs smoothly and perfectly. Why? Because it's a big deal. It's an exciting thing. 
girls dream about and, and can't wait and, and they picture and they fantasize about their wedding. Maybe some guys do as well, but mostly girls do. And in Jesus' day, as much as weddings are a big deal and a big celebration for us in our culture, in Jesus' day, weddings were even more impressive. They were even bigger celebrations than they are today. So if you love going to weddings, you would have loved it in Jesus' day. So in John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, we're going to see Jesus' first miracle that he does. So let's read just the first three verses. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, now this is the third day of Jesus' public ministry. The first day he's on the scene, John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then Andrew and John are following him. The next day, Simon Peter comes to Jesus. And then day three, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel to himself. So this is the same day that takes place in the verses before this chapter, in verse 1, the end of verse 1. The third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, re- when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. As I mentioned earlier, we'll stop there. Weddings in Jesus' day were a huge celebration. Unlike today, the groom was responsible for paying for the wedding. He was responsible for planning the festivities, making sure everything went according to plan. Weddings usually lasted longer than a day. Some of them went on for as long as a week. The ceremony itself actually took place after a huge feast where they had food and wine and celebration. And at night, as the young married couple would go back to their house in the village, they didn't go on a honeymoon and go away, they went back to their house at night, they were paraded through the village streets by the crowd that was at the wedding with torches and lights, and they took the longest route possible home. Why? So that all of the village can celebrate and see the married couple and give them wishes and blessings and honor. So again, weddings were an ultimate celebration. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of weddings because I don't like loud music and dancing. Um, Somehow I can play guitar and sing. I can't even clap and sing. I I don't know. And even if I do clap and sing, I clap on the wrong beat. You can ask Gabby, Stephanie, and Sophia. Uh, So thank you guys for your patience. But I'm not very coordinated when it comes to staying in tune and on a rhythm and on a beat. So if I didn't like weddings nowadays, I probably wouldn't have liked it back in Jesus. Well, maybe I would have because there's not loud music being played, but I feel like I'm getting older. But anyway, weddings back then were an ultimate celebration, a huge feast. It could be as long as a week-long celebration for the village. As I was preparing this, a couple of preachers went this avenue with just Jesus attending the wedding. As we see Jesus attending the wedding feast, he doesn't go with a sermon prepared. He doesn't go as he's going like, to lead some sort of huge corporate prayer but he simply goes to the wedding feast because he's invited. He's going to partake in the celebration and the wedding festivities. He doesn't go to actually be any sort of killjoy or to sit there in the corner and be like, well, that's not right, that's not right, no, no, can't do that, shouldn't do that. Rather, we see him, what, going to the wedding, and actually his miracle increases the wedding fun and the wedding festivity. One commentator says this, that by attending this wedding, And performing his first miracle at a wedding, Jesus both sanctified the institution of marriage and the ceremony of marriage itself. As marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman, whereby they become one flesh in the sight of God. So we see that in this little town in Cana, in Galilee, both Mary, Jesus, his five disciples, John, Andrew, Simon Peter, Nathaniel, Philip, all the guys that were mentioned previously in John chapter 1, They're all invited, and they're there. 
And there's some speculation that maybe this was a relative of Mary's or a relative of Jesus that was being married, but the verses aren't clear on that. But we do know something for certain, that Mary was in the know. She knew of a problem before anybody else knew of it. The problem was they have no wine. So if you're looking at your notes and want to follow along, there's sort of four things we'll look at in these verses. The first one we'll look at is the wedding and the problem. Just raise your hand, no pointing fingers or, or blaming someone, but raise your hand if you've ever been to a party, an event, a celebration where they ran out of food or drink. Wow, not, not as many hands as I thought. Okay, well, maybe I'll backtrack what I was about to say. I have, maybe because I show up a little later and I miss the food. I don't know, but I actually went to uh, a Sweet 16 a few weeks ago, and because I'm gluten-free now, I, my selections are even more limited because I'm a picky eater as well. But about 10 or 15 minutes into the line, I wanted to go back and get something, and it was gone. And I'm like, what? What? What, what do I do now? I really wanted that. Usually when this happens, it's not a big deal. We, we get over it. You might be mad or frustrated in the moment. Be like, are you kidding me? No, I, I was expecting to eat lunch or dinner, and now I, I guess I'll figure something out. It's not the end of the world. It's something that you can fix. You can run out and get something. You can, after the, the ceremony, you can go and eat something. But this problem that Mary brings up is catastrophic in the culture and the context of this time period. It's both catastrophic for the bride, but especially for the groom and his family. This type of problem, running out of wine, could ruin the reputation of the bride and the groom for the rest of their lives. It opened them up for social and public embarrassment from the town and even some lawsuits. They were liable for lawsuits. This would be an embarrassment for the groom because of this mindset or this thinking. If he couldn't even plan and effectively take care of the ceremony, the food, the wine, all that planning, how could he possibly take care of his bride and provide for his bride and protect his bride? There's also a Jewish idiom or a Jewish saying that's, that goes like this. Without wine, there is no joy. I didn't hear any amen, so that's okay. Thumbs up on that, I guess, maybe. Without wine, there is no joy. Now, in Jesus' day, I'll say this as a sidetrack, Jesus' day, wine is a lot different than it is in our culture with wine. It was cut to about one-tenth with water. So it was very, very weak. And, and wine was something, or I should say being drunk, even as in the Jewish culture and the Jewish law, was unacceptable. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. You did not get drunk as a Jewish person. So without wine, there is no joy. What, with wine, there's celebration, it's happiness, there's joy. But Mary brings this problem to her son, to Jesus. And why would Mary go to Jesus? Why, why would she go to Jesus? Maybe one option is that he's her firstborn son. It's believed that Joseph, uh, uh, Mary's husband Joseph, has already died. And since Jesus was the firstborn in that culture, his responsibility was to take care of his mother to provide and to take care for Mary, his mother. And maybe since Jesus was sinless and Jesus was perfect, maybe Mary was thinking that he could figure out a perfect solution with perfect wisdom how to fix this problem. Maybe she relied on Jesus in the past for things because, again, he's her firstborn. He's there to take care and provide for her. So maybe Mary was saying, Jesus, my son, my firstborn, can, I need help. What, what do we do? The second, which maybe Mary was hinting at Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. What could take away from the, 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 the killjoy or the, the, the shame of running out of wine than saying, hey, guess what, we ran out of wine, but guess what, the Messiah is here. Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe. Maybe she wants Jesus to reveal himself to the crowd. 
Which in verse 5, maybe this is why, Je- or verse 4, maybe this is why Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come yet. It's not my time yet. Now, whatever the case, Mary goes to Jesus, her son, and asks for help. I don't think Mary was expecting a miracle. Because up to this point, Jesus hadn't done any miracles. This is his first miracle that he did. Regardless of why, she asked Jesus, help, they have no wine, what are we to do? And just as an application, as I've been looking and studying and thinking through this, no matter how small or how large our problems may be, maybe you had the worst week of your life. Maybe it it took a lot of effort and work to just be here today in church. And maybe you're putting on a smile and you're putting on a good, brave front. But Maybe you had a terrible week. Maybe you had the best week of your life. Regardless of what we're going through in our lives, any trials or any problems, no matter how small or how large, We're commanded to bring them before Jesus, to lay it at his feet. He can carry our burdens. Sometimes we like to play like these like hide and seek games, like, oh, well, uh, you know, as long as I don't bring my burdens to Jesus, then he won't know what I'm going through. Or maybe we're like, okay, this 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 trial, this problem is way too big for Jesus. I can't I can't bring it before him. It's too big for him. Or maybe the opposite. This is a small problem. I don't want to bother Jesus with this small problem. We, we have a lot of excuses that we go through, but Scripture is clear that we're commanded to bring our burdens, to bring our problems, to bring our prayer requests before Jesus, our Savior, and to lay them at his feet, to surrender them to him. Here we see Mary relying on Jesus, bringing her problem to Jesus. And in your notes, number two, we'll see Jesus' response in the next couple of verses. Jesus' response in verse 4, We read, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now notice Jesus' response. He calls his mother, Woman. Maybe some of you, your ears perked up, or you're like, oh. oh." Maybe you're thinking, what would happen if I called my mom woman? If my mom says to me, David, clean your room, and I was like, okay, woman. I would tell you there would probably be a bar of soap in my mouth. Um, within a second. Right? On the surface, Jesus' response to his mother, it seems rude, it seems disrespectful. But actually, the word that's used here in the Greek, it's a formal, respectful word to use for a lady, for a woman in Jesus' culture. Think of it as a modern-day ma'am. Yes, ma'am, no ma'am. There's a level or a title of, of being formal, of respecting the woman by calling her woman, However, it's not an intimate word. Sons would not call their mother's woman. Why? Because that's their mother. That's not a woman. It's their mother. By using this word, as I was researching, what, what Jesus is doing here is he's starting to shift the relationship between him and Mary. No longer is Jesus to be under his mother's authority, taking care of her, because I would say he has younger siblings, right, who are under him, who are old enough now to take care of Mary. Jesus' earthly relationships are not going to determine his, his actions, his public ministry. In calling Mary woman, Mary was to relate to Jesus no longer as her son, but as her Messiah, as the Son of God, as her Savior. Jesus also calls Mary woman when he's on the cross. He says, woman, behold your son. And he's talking to John, the author of this gospel. He's talking to Mary. Woman, behold your son. Also, from my best research, you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
Jesus never once calls his mother Mary, mother. Right? And any exchange that we see between Jesus and Mary is, is woman. And after this, everything after this, it's, it's woman as well. And there's not a lot of interactions that are recorded in the gospel that Jesus is directly talking with Mary. But again, by using this word woman, he's making a shift in their relationship. He's kind of coming out from under her wing of authority and what? Starting his public ministry. Mary is to be, or Jesus is to be Mary's savior, not her son. If you go to Luke chapter 2, we won't read it, but if you want to just go over there, Luke chapter 2 verse 41 there's a story which, in which Joseph and Mary take Jesus, as he's 12 years old, to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And as they're leaving, it's three days into their journey back home where they forget and they look and see, we don't have Jesus. Where is he? Right? They, they seemingly lost the Messiah. They lost Jesus. And in verse 49 of Luke chapter 2, they go and they find Jesus sitting in the temple. And Jesus says this to his parents, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Another translation was, he said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And then in verse 51, it says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary also treasured up other things in the scriptures, and she did not forget these events. The same words are recorded in Luke's gospel in the beginning, after the shepherds come to Jesus when he's born, and they tell Mary and Joseph of all they've seen and were told by the angels, and it says that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She remembered these events. Mary remembered and knew that there would be a time where Jesus would no longer be her son, but rather the Savior and her Savior and the Savior of the world. At this moment, Jesus is making that clear shift in their relationship, this major change. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And that phrase, what does this have to do with me, it sounds harsh, but back then, this was an expression It literally translates to, what to me, to you? And it's an expression that asks between the two parties in the discussion, what do we have in common? What, what, what cause or what, what concern of, of yours does is, is it relate to me? It has the effect of distancing the two people talking. Right? What do we have in common? And then Jesus continues by saying to Mary, my hour has not yet come. This phrase will continue to appear throughout John's gospel. My hour has not yet come. Jesus will continue to say this. It points to the understanding that Jesus is on a divine schedule, that nothing and no one can stop Jesus' mission of dying on the cross. There are times in the gospel where we see Jesus is pushed off or pushed to, the cl to, to a cliff's edge by the crowd of people, and it just says that Jesus walked through their midst and escaped and walked away. Right? Jesus isn't the greatest Houdini of the world, but he's God. It wasn't his time to be killed. The Pharisees picked up stones to stone Jesus in the temple in front of a huge crowd, and the crowd joined them. And it says, what, Jesus passed through their midst and just walked away. Right? How does he do that other than being God, being on a divine schedule that no one or nothing could thwart? And as Christians, this is what we celebrate, that Jesus died on the cross, that the Savior of the world Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come to die on the cross for our sins. When we put our faith and our trust and our hope in Him and Him alone, the Bible says that we become justified, we become reconciled, that we become sons and daughters of God. So this exchange between Jesus and Mary, it points that Jesus' mission is to do the will of His Father. 
That's what his public ministry mission will always be. Throughout the John's Gospel, we'll see this phrase come up over and over and over again. Jesus says, I do the will of my Father. Nothing or no one's going to stop or thwart Jesus from his mission, from the will of the Father, which is the cross. And then this conversation ends with Mary in verse 5 saying, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary seems to be aware of Jesus' mild rebuke. Again, he's not being rude. He's, he's using language here. And she also realizes that she, he doesn't say no. It seemingly looks like he says no. As I read this, I really struggled and said, well, it looks like Jesus said no, and then he did the miracle anyway. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But being aware of that, she calls the servants over and says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do it. And just notice Mary's faith and trust in her son, Jesus. Whatever he says to do, do it. I don't know if there's anybody at your work or at school or your friends that you would trust fully in this way, right? Like your job's on the line or your life's on the line, and you point to them and say, whatever they say to do, believe them, trust them, and that they'll do it, and they'll take care of me. Maybe some of you, yeah, I know a friend or I know someone who will do that, who I can rely on. But just notice her, her faith and her trust in Jesus. I think this should be our motto or prayer for our lives. Maybe if you want to put it on your fridge as a little magnet or maybe in a picture frame in your bathroom or, or something like that, or a little note in your pocket. Whatever Jesus says to do, do it. And it sounds easy. It does. Whatever Jesus says to do, do it. And you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. Sometimes Jesus tells us to do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I have a plan set up. This is my timeline. This is everything I want. And then it falls apart, and I'm like, what? And then I feel Jesus telling, don't do that, or, or, or do something else. And I'm like, but I want to do this. I want to do what I want to do. As Christians, whatever Jesus says to do, do it. Why? He's God. He knows. He knows better than us. And that takes surrendering to do. That takes admitting, saying, Jesus, you're in control. Jesus, you're not my co-pilot. You're my pilot. I'm just a passenger sitting in the back, and if you're me, you're gripping the seats in the plane. But Jesus, you're not my co-pilot. You're my pilot. I'm just, I'm here for the ride. You control my life. Whatever Jesus says to do, do it. We see Mary entrusting Jesus to take care of this problem, saying to the servants, do what he says. And that leads us to number three, Jesus' miracle. In verse six, we'll read, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So right now we see something happening. The servants, there were six stone jars there at the wedding for the Jewish purification customs. And in these six jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, with all six, if you're good at math, it can hold between 120 and 180 gallons of water. As the guests would come and prepare to eat, they would have to purify and cleanse their hands as a custom, the Jewish custom, before partaking in the feast. And I watched a few videos because I was curious what this looks like. And what it looks like is uh, what the Jewish people would do is they'd, they'd scoop water out in a cup and they would hold out one hand at a time in like a C formation, and they would hold their hand kind of like straight like this, and three times they'd pour water. One, two, three, and the water should get wet. You should be wet from the fingertip all the way to your wrist, and then they switch hands. One, two, three, 
And then what they would do is they'd keep their hands up. They would say a blessing. Right? At this time, you were not supposed to dry your hands. You weren't supposed to talk or do anything. You had to say a blessing, and there was silence while you said this blessing. And then you would dry your hands. But you would dry your hands in the upright position. Because what would happen is if there was a bead of water that was down here, and then you put your hands like this, and that water ran back over your hand, you'd be deemed ceremonially unclean. And you'd have to go through this ritual process again. I just thought it was interesting. Sometimes when you read things like that, you just glance over it, you're like, okay, I don't really know what that means. So we see Jesus commanding the servants to fill these jars, these, these things with water, and they fill them up to the brim. John points out that they fill them up to the brim, and I think it's important to stop and to realize why he says that. He points to it being something significant. It's significant because it's an emphasize, it emphasizes that Jesus didn't add anything. Jesus could not have added anything to these water jugs. It's not like they filled them three quarters, and then Jesus had like some wine concentrate in his back robe pocket, and he, when no one was looking, he kind of went like this and poured it in. But what we see is, no, they're filled to the brim. Jesus' miracle is not that he added anything, but he transformed water to wine on a molecular level. Like, you can't do that. You can't replicate that. That's a miracle. He transforms it. After the servants fill the jars to the brim, they're commanded by Jesus to draw some out and to give it to the master of the feast. That would be like an ancient day MC, if you've ever been to like a wedding or a party, an, an MC, someone who is kind of leading the, the ceremony. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. As we read this first miracle, it seems that the miracle itself is really not highlighted. If you accidentally skip over a line in the Bible, you'll miss the miracle. It, it, it's, it, there's not like this huge contextual like, you know, rabbit trail of 20 verses that John explains how Jesus did it. But we know sometime between verse 7 and verse 9, between Jesus telling them to fill them up and they fill to the brim and the servants scoop it out and give it to the, the master of the feast, somewhere between those verses, Jesus does this miracle. He transforms the wine. Jesus' first miracle it had to do with creation. I don't know if you caught that or thought about that. He creates wine from nothing but water. He didn't grow wine or plant, or, or, or not grow wine, grow vines or, or plant vines and water them and wait for them to sprout up. He didn't pick the grapes off and mash them and wait for them to ferment and then add it to the water. He creates wine, but good wine. Not like the bare minimum, not like, <clears throat> I'll just make some you know, regular wine. Good wine, the best wine he creates by his own creative power. I also found it a bit strange that Jesus' first miracle, it happens in a small village's private wedding <clears throat> where no one really knew what Jesus had done except for Mary, the few servants, his five disciples. You would almost expect the Messiah, right? If, if we're thinking in, in our terms and in, in really our plan, you'd expect maybe the Messiah to do something more impressive. You know, maybe like, why, you know, Jesus, why don't you just like fly over Jerusalem? Why don't you call like a fire tornado down from heaven and, and do some crazy things? But for whatever reason, he says, my hour has not yet come. That wasn't a part of God's divine schedule. But we see here Jesus creating wine for a groom who ran out of wine 
at his wedding. If you notice, Jesus doesn't even take credit or look to take the credit for what he did. Neither do the servants point out to the guest and to the bridegroom and to the master of the feast what Jesus did. The groom doesn't even ask, where does this wine come from? I don't know where this wine came from. We read in the last verse why Jesus did this miracle. And I'll be honest with you, I really struggled with this question this week. And we'll go through the purpose of why Jesus did this miracle. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So according to these last couple of verses, why does Jesus do this? The first reason, I would say, he, he manifests his glory. It's the start of him revealing who he is. It points back to the previous chapter in John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, God, came from heaven to earth and tabernacled, pitched his tent, lived among us. And then John says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we see John seeing Jesus' glory manifesting. Jesus, the eternal word, the one who creates all things from nothing, manifests his glory by creating wine from the water. Jesus is not only the Messiah, which the Old Testament promises to come, who would save the world and deliver Israel, but he's also God. John records eight miracles through his Gospels. If you compare that to the other Gospels, it seems that, that again, John... His focus is really not on the amount of miracles that Jesus does, but he has specific miracles there for a reason. And the reason is the point that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you believe in him, right, if your faith is in him, then he gives you life abundantly. That's the purpose of John's Gospel. We, we looked at that a few weeks ago, and it's in John chapter 19. In the last chapter of his Gospel, He also says, now there were many other signs Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So uh, John, for whatever reason, he he records eight miracles throughout his gospel, and this is one of them. Jesus turns water into wine. The second thing, why did Jesus do this? And and here's the answer that I I think it's simple. His disciples believed in him. Not only did the five disciples who were with Jesus previously in that, you know, the previous days, that they believed to his Messiah from their conversations with him, but now they've seen him do an incredible miracle. As a result of this miracle, John records that they believed in him. I spent hours this week listening to other preachers preach through this, reading commentaries, Googling things, getting to the third or fourth page of Google, and once you get there, you should just give up because you don't know what you're going to see there and and how accurate that's going to be. But I struggle with, why did Jesus do this miracle? Right, Mary, it seemingly looked like he said no to Mary, and then he does it. One pastor in particular said that maybe Jesus created the wine from the water to bless and to protect the reputation of the married couple, the bride and the groom. By doing this, he's showing compassion for them. He's blessing them with this absurd amount of good wine that they can take home with them. If they sell it, they'll be good for a few years financially. Maybe. I mean, that is in line with Jesus' character, but I don't know where those verses are in these verses here. 
I've heard other people say, too, that Jesus did this miracle because his mother asked him to, and he was being a good, obedient son. Actually, the, the Catholics, they've used this verse to show evidence that Jesus is somehow subjected to Mary, that if you really want Jesus' attention, you should pray and ask Mary because Jesus will listen to Mary. So if you're praying to Jesus and he's not listening, pray to Mary because Mary will do what Jesus says. Again, I don't see that in the text at all. I think just from the simple reading of this account, Jesus does this miracle to start his ministry, to manifest his glory. He's on a divine schedule. right? In our eyes, this looks, why would he do it in such a small private way? Because it was God's plan. But not only that, it says his disciples believed in him. Maybe that's why he performs this miracle. Maybe it is that simple. As Christians, I'll, I'll relate it to this. Have you ever gone to like a rally or a conference or a worship night or, a co- or, or something among those lines and you leave feeling recharged, refreshed? Maybe you use this phrase, I, I want to rededicate my life to Jesus. Right? Right? It, you're, it's not like you got saved at that event, but it's reminding you of who we worship. It encourages, it refuels us, it re-energizes us. I think in the same way, it's not like the disciples were doubting, oh, we talked to Jesus yesterday, but I don't know, is he really the Messiah? It says they believed he was the Messiah and proclaimed it last week when we looked at these verses. And now the same thing. He does these miracles. They believed in him. I think Jesus is strengthening his disciples' faith. And as they're, eventually they're going to go out and they're going to go and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I think that's why Jesus does this miracle, and John has it in his gospel, to manifest his glory and for the disciples to believe in him. If we go back to even last week's sermon, if you go back to the end of chapter 1, Nathanael cries out to Jesus, you are the king of Israel, you are the Messiah, because Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Then he says to Nathanael, you believe because I said that I saw you under the fig tree? And this is David's translation, by the way. In a sense, Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. If you think that's amazing, just wait. You're going to see things a lot more powerful and amazing. And here we see it, a miracle. Water does not magically turn into wine. Water cannot, you can't look at it and concentrate on it enough and say, okay, I want it to be wine. Okay, maybe I'll wait 100 years. Maybe it'll be wine now. It's a miracle. It's a transformation miracle that Jesus does. And I want to end with this. If you have your Bibles, turn a few pages to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Throughout John's gospel, as we continue our study on it, we're going to see three different ways that people react to Jesus, how they respond to Jesus. The first that we just read, we see his disciples. What do they do? They believed in him. They believed in him. The second, if you go to John chapter 12, verse 37, you're going to see people that do not believe in Jesus. So 12, verse 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Their hearts were hardened. Their eyes and their minds were blinded by the God of this world. They rejoiced and loved the darkness rather than the light. So you'll either see people believe in Jesus, reject and not believe in Jesus. And then here's the third one, John 12, verse 42, a few verses down. 
Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you'll have a group of people that believe in Jesus, but they don't want to pay the social price. They don't want to pay the cost of following Jesus. It reminded me of the young rich ruler. He says to Jesus, what must I do? Jesus tells him what he must do, and then what? He walks away sorrowful. He walks away sad, for he had many possessions. He wasn't willing or able to what? Follow Jesus because it was too costly. And it reminds me from last week's quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So you'll see throughout John's gospel, those who believe in him, those who reject him, and those who follow him, seemingly, but when the cost gets too high, or if it's too costly for them, they turn away, and they're not true followers. For us as Christians, Jesus wants all of our heart, all of our lives, not a little bit of it. I used an analogy with the youth group kids. Sometimes there's idols in our hearts. When we come to Christ, we want to stay how we were acting in our sin, but then on the same page, we want to be uh, sanctified and become more and more like Jesus. And I used a tug-of-war illustration. I had a student come up, and I had one student on one side, one on the other, and just kind of pulling gen- gently, but then it turned a little aggressive. But they were all related. So they were tugging on this girl, right, left and right. And I said, this is what happens in our hearts when we're unwilling to let go of the sin and to follow Jesus and fully surrender to him. We're caught in this tug-of-war between how we were before Christ, and who we are in Christ. And as Christians, our call is to total surrender, total reliance, total faith in Christ. And again, as we look and study John's gospel, we'll answer the question, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Word, the eternal Word. He is God. He's our Savior. And why does it matter? Because people need Him to be saved. We cannot save ourselves we, we can't save others. Only Jesus can, and his death on the cross and his blood is sufficient enough to cover our sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you for what we've just read, that you are the Messiah, that you are God. We look at this miracle, and we can only come to one conclusion that you are God, that you have power over creation, that you created wine from water. That doesn't happen by itself. That doesn't happen naturally ever. Jesus, I pray that as we continue our series, and as we go back either to our homes this week, to our workplace, to our school, I pray, Lord, that we can be encouraged and be reminded of the love that we have from you. I pray that we remember, regardless of our problems, whether they're small, seemingly, or large, we're commanded to bring them before you and surrender them to you. You are a perfect help. You command us, and you, you can carry our burdens. You want to. So, Jesus, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, we're convicted if we need to surrender things over to you, if we need to stop trusting in ourselves and trust in you. We praise you for your word and we praise you for your faithfulness. Even at times when we don't worship you the way that we're supposed to, we don't follow you the way we're supposed to, you don't give up on us. You love us, and you call us back to you. That even in, in all of our sin and shame, 
we can run to you and cling to you, and you forgive us. So Jesus, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. In just a few moments, I'll invite the worship team to come back up on stage. We're going to end, and we're going to sing our last verse of 10,000 Reasons. So if you're able to, let's stand, and let's sing our last song together this morning.